Welcome back. This is the Sharp End Podcast. I'm Ashley, your hostess and creator of the show. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. Since 1862, Mammut has been making gear that allows you to confidently go. In these challenging times, make sure you are recreating responsibly and adventure locally. This month, Mammut will be giving away their Berry Vox Beacon. With a search strip width of 70 meters, the Berry Vox is one of the most powerful devices on the market. Its intuitive design makes it easy to use under stress so you can travel confidently in the backcountry. Stay tuned to the very end of this episode to learn how you can win Mammut's Berry Vox Beacon. Thank you to our friends at Desert Mountain Medicine, Sunto, Minus 33, and Ski Babes for sponsoring this show. This episode is sponsored by Ski Babes. Get strong in mind and body so you can have as much fun as possible this winter. Build strength and confidence, keep up with your friends, prevent injuries, manage self-doubt, imposter syndrome, and winter mood slumps, all in a supportive community of women who get it. Ski Babes is mental health-informed online winter sports training designed to fit into a busy life so when the weekend hits, you're ready. Our 2020 training season starts October 12th, and you can sign up at sarahmhistand.com with discount code SHARPENDBABES to get 20 bucks off. Okay, so I'm throwing it back to the mid-90s for this one. I was in the awkward middle school years wearing Jenko jeans and listening to NoFX, Rancid, and Dead Kennedys. Well, Brian here was climbing rocks in Alabama. He started off in the local gym, and then him and his buddies started climbing sport routes outside. Here's Brian. I hope you enjoy the episode. My name is Brian Vines. Uh, I'm a an attorney, um, a litigator. I represent people in lawsuits. I currently live in Lexington, Kentucky. I've lived in a fair amount of places, California, Alabama, Virginia, uh, but my family's landed in Lexington and I've been married to my wife, Sarah Beth, for 17 years. And we have four children ranging in ages from seven to 14. Boys, girls, so we have uh, three boys. JT's 14, Daniel's 12, Samuel is nine, and then um, we got a girl, Sarah Helen, and she's seven. Oh, cool. So uh, you're a climber. Yes, I am a, a, a recently back to climber. When we moved to Lexington, which was five years ago, uh, I got back into climbing, and of course, we're, I'm an hour from the Red River Gorge and have really gotten back into it in probably the last three years. Uh, but I started climbing when I was a kid. So. Okay. So you started climbing when, when you were a kid and, and then why, why the long break? Well, yeah. So that's the, that's what leads to the story. Um, so when I was, I don't know, 15, I got into mountain biking and, and then eventually backpacking and camping. And then we eventually got into climbing. So I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, which is uh, kind of at the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. People think Alabama's flat, but there's some hills in the north close to Chattanooga, places like that. And so we started climbing. I was probably 16 when we started. There was a local gym. So this would have been in the late 90s or really mid 90s, 96, 97. And we started climbing in a local gym and, and then eventually we started going outside. So there's a place called Sand Rock, 
that's in Alabama. And then we climb at a place called Foster Falls, which is up near Chattanooga. So that's what. And are those places predominantly sport climbs or, or gear climbs, track climbs? Um, so we only did sport climbing. So there's, that's all I knew of at the time. There, there could be trad routes there. I just didn't know about them, but they're, they're sport, sport route places. Okay. And so, yeah, so we got into climbing. I was, um, you know, when I got my driver's license, we would, we would, my parents were, we were good kids. We didn't get to a lot of trouble. They let us take these weekend trips and we'd go camp and climb. Um, I had probably been climbing for around a year and it was, and I remember it was, it was Martin Luther King weekend. Um, and so we were out of school on Monday and it was a be- kind of one of those beautiful Alabama days that you can get in the winter where you're going to get highs in the, you know, sixties, uh, blue sky day. And we made a day trip over to Sand Rock, which was, I don't know, an hour and a half drive, uh, from my house. And I had three friends that I climbed with. Uh, well, there was a bigger group of us, but there were three guys, uh, Jamie, I mean, Jamie, James, Matt and Jerry. And so we headed to Sand Rock and, um, Sand Rock is a, I've actually been back there since, but at the time it was basically, you know, this is back before climbing was as popular as it is today. So it was, I don't even know who owned the land. It was a, uh, gravel parking lot. You drove down a gravel road to a gravel parking lot. There were no signs. There was no nothing. And then if you knew where you were going, you could find uh, the routes. And it's this funny place where it's not really a cliff line. It's more of just these, I mean, they're not boulders. I mean, they're clearly cliffs, but there's like pinnacles and they're all just together. And and you come in at the top and then you kind of have to hike down a little bit uh, to where the climbing is. And so you know, we climbed all day. Uh, we were doing it, it. This is, well, we did do some leading, but we would also back then, um, set routes from the top because a lot of the routes weren't bolted. So you would, you could climb up to the top of these, these rock formations and there would be trees or big boulders and we would use webbing to set up a top rope. And, um, and so we climbed all day and, it was the the end of the day, and um, the the last route we were going to climb. I remember it was you know the sun was setting, it was starting to get a little bit colder, and we put up I think it was like a five eight, really juggy, um, great rock route. Uh, but again, we we set the rope from the top, and my buddy James was belaying me, and from the top, no. Good, good question. No, he was belaying me from the bottom. So we had set up a top rope from the top. And, and again, these are methods you probably wouldn't use today, but we had webbing around. I don't remember if it was a tree or a boulder. And then that came down to where we had a locking carabiner. And Your master just, point. Correct. Yeah. And you just ran the rope through that because this rope or this route wasn't bolted. But what I remember about it was it was a juggy, probably a five, eight, maybe a five, seven. It was an easy route. It was the end of the day. Um, you know, I was young and I don't, 
as I'm telling this story, I don't remember if we double checked each other before I went up. We, we were pretty good about that. Um, what I do know is that I tied a bowling because that's just what we tied back then. And the reasoning was you could get it undone easier if you took a fall on it than a figure eight. I want to pause here and make this really clear because it becomes important in a moment. Brian used a bowline to tie the climbing rope to his harness, and he must have made a mistake with this knot or failed to dress it well, but nobody noticed the mistake. And so he wasn't properly tied in when he reached the top of their route. Um, and so I ran up the route and I got to the top. It was about 65 feet. And I got to the top. Um, I was about to climb over the edge because that's what you would do. You'd, you'd get to the top of the route, climb over the edge and take everything down and just hike off the backside. Because your car was closer from the top than it was from the bottom? Well, yeah, and to take down the anchor. Right. Well, so, because it was the end of the day, but I hollered down to James and just said, hey, do you, you know, do you want me to take down the anchor or do you want to climb this? And he said, oh, you know, I want to climb it. I was like, all right, you got me. He said, I got you. And that's really the last thing I remember. Um, you know, when you're top roping and your layers got you, you just let go. And I let go. Um, I, I can say this today, and I've said it, I said it after it happened. The fall, I, so I, I fell to the bottom and. 65 feet. 65 feet. A, and, a vertical, like you, did you hit anything on the way? I, so I don't think so. I have a cut on my head, so I probably hit something, but I didn't like bounce off a ledge. Um, and there's actually one flat rock at the bottom. And that's Were you I, wearing a helmet? Uh, no. no, Oof. no. Um, we, we wore helmets when we mountain biked. We were pretty, pretty serious about that, but I don't, I don't ever remember us ever even thinking about wearing helmets when we were climbing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, again, and, and I know this, this, this was Martin Luther King day of 1997. So I don't even know if helmets were really a thing back then in Alabama with rock climbing, but the fall was, it was like a black and white dream. That's, that's what I say to people. And that's what I said to people after it happened. I mean, I, I, I don't really remember it, but it was like a dream and it, you know, it happened. But what I, um, remember was, you know, kind of coming to on the ground, uh, trying to get up. And and they kept saying, you know, don't move, don't move. And I'm like, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I kept trying to get up, um, but then quickly realized, like, that wasn't, that wasn't going to work. I remember getting cold. And I don't remember what the weather was that day. It was probably in the 50s by then, but I started shivering. And at some point they had, you know, luckily we did have cell phones back then and there was coverage. So somebody ran to the parking lot and called and they sent the local, whatever county we were in, kind of, you know, and there wasn't a rescue squad. It's not like, you know, now at the Red River Gorge, I mean, they're, they're, people there that are prepared for climbing accidents, even though they're rural counties here in Kentucky. Well, back then in Alabama, that wasn't the case. So just the local ambulance came and they quickly realized 
that it was more than they could handle. And so they called to Chattanooga and actually sent a helicopter. What do you mean it was more than them for to handle? So because you fell, you had a cut on your head and you, you know, you, you tried to get up and you couldn't get up. Uh, what was, what was happening? Well, so, I mean, I have, I mean, I haven't talked about all my injuries, but I think that, I think the, the ambulance that arrived, I don't know what they were expecting, you know, maybe a broken ankle or maybe, um, you know, sprained ankle or something. And they realized that it could be a spinal injury. It could be all kinds of things. Um, and that I was going to need more than, cause at that point we're probably a two hour drive from Chattanooga. Um, and, and so maybe the, the answer is it was more than their local hospital could handle. So they got me on a board, right. And they got me kind of strapped down, but then a helicopter came from Chattanooga, um, and landed in the parking lot and picked me up. And I do, I do remember, um, well, a couple things. I remember one, I had, I don't know if you remember these, these Patagonia, the, the highest level, um, or the highest thickness shirts they had that were like the long underwear, but they're almost like sweatpants. And I love that shirt and they cut it off of me. And I remember, being, oh. yeah. And I mean, it's just silly things you remember, right? I remember they were cutting it off of me and I was so mad because I love that shirt. Uh, and of course you can't buy them. They don't make them like that anymore, but <clears throat> you know, they cut my shirt off and, you know, told me to be still and got me, uh, set for transfer. And then I, I remember the helicopter ride. Um, I can remember looking out the window and it was night, you know, seeing lights when it was turning. Um, and they took me to Chattanooga, which was maybe 90 miles from Huntsville, which is where my parents were. Of course, you know, now that I'm a parent, I can only imagine what my parents went through because they were at dinner. Um, and somebody came and found them and just said, you know, Brian's had an accident and they had to drive the 90 miles from Huntsville to Chattanooga where, you know, they saw me in the ER. Um, you know, as far as, as the injuries go. So, I mean, clearly, and I think about this every day, I'm lucky to be alive. Um, I'm lucky physically, you know, I can walk and everything. Um, I fell, I think I landed kind of in a sitting position with my right leg down because I shattered my right ankle. And then, um, and then I think I landed on my butt and all that force went straight up through my spine, ended up separating one of the rings on my pelvis. I had a compression fracture of my L5 vertebrae and then shattered my left elbow and both, both wrists. So, I mean, I always think of it as if you're falling and, you know, my left leg's sticking out, my right leg is down and my hands are down almost to catch myself. And then, you know, fortunately all that force went straight up instead of sideways. Cause if, you know, if I'd landed on my back, I'm sure it would have gotten my um, spinal cord. Um, but yeah, so, you know, they flew me to Chattanooga. The, the recovery was, was not fun, huh. you know, to say the least, right? 
Ryan. <laughs> right. And I was a senior in high school. Um, you know, I'm 17 years old. My whole life is in front of me. Uh, I'm on the, the kind of home stretch of high school. Right. Cause this was in January, right? right? So you've got another, you've got another half year to go and then you're done. Right. Right. And it's, you know, it's your senior year of high school. So that's, that's, there's a lot of fun that comes with that. Um, and you know, all of a sudden, probably within a day I had surgery. I don't think it was that night. I think it was the next day, but I mean, it was an eight hour surgery and the orthopedic surgeon told my mom that it was like Humpty Dumpty. He had to kind of take my ankle and elbow out, put them back together and then put them back. Here I am in this hospital room, you know, 90 miles from my house. And, and I can't, I can't move because the other thing that happened, well, because of the separated pelvis, they couldn't do surgery on it. And I just had to be in bed for six weeks and let it heal itself. And they didn't want me to put any weight on it. The orthopedic surgery was bad enough, but then I got pancreatitis. So if I ate food or drank water or anything, it just came right back up. I mean, I could have ice chips, but that was about it. I ended up being in the hospital for 17 days. And I think in a large part because of the pancreatitis, not so much the, the orthopedic surgery. I then had an ambulance take me home. They had to put a hospital. My room was upstairs, so they had to put a hospital bed in our living room because I could. They, they took you back to, to your parents' house? Yes. So after the 17 days, an ambulance drove me from Chattanooga back to Huntsville. And they put the hospital bed in the living room. And that's where I spent the next, I don't know, five or six weeks. That's where you spent the rest of your high school. (laughs) Well, in short, um, so what that was January. So it was probably sometime in March that I could even get up with crutches. And I remember that day. I remember going to the doctor the day that I stood up, um, and of course, I still had crutches because my my right ankle was in such bad shape. And then, you know, then it was physical therapy, which you, you don't think about this stuff, but your hands can rotate, right? Like you just turn them. Well, my left elbow, because of that, and then I fractured my left hand, had been in a cast for six weeks, and all that motion was gone. And I remember going to physical therapy and them just work in my arms. And that was some of the most painful experiences I can remember. Even more painful than you laying on the ground when you first fell. Well, it's funny you say that because the reality of the situation was, I think I was in shock. And so I don't, I don't remember being in pain. What I remember is trying to get up and it not working, which makes sense because my left arm was in such bad shape. I mean, both my arms were, or my right wrist and my left arm was broken. So I couldn't push up. And of course my right ankle, but I don't remember pain necessarily. And then in the hospital, I remember pain, but I was also on a morphine pump. So, you know, there was a lot of medication to go with that. Um, But the physical therapy, I remember that pain because there's no, 
<laughs> there's no shock and there's no medicine. You just have to, to deal with it. So they go. I'm curious about what your friends, your two guy friends that were, when you fell, what were they like? What, what was their reaction? What did, what did they do exactly for you? Um, what I know is that it's, I mean, clearly they were scared, right? I, la- yeah. I mean, I landed at their feet. And right, right. One was, was belaying you. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, he's got me. And, and it's cl- well, I don't think I've said this yet. It's clear what happened. The rope came out of my harness. My, he, he didn't screw up the belay because I hit the ground and then the rope came down. So he's still blank. I mean, he's got the rope in his hand and all right. of a sudden it goes loose and he sees you zipping feet. towards him uh, and you're not tied into the rope anymore. Right. I mean, it, it scared him. I mean, we were young. And, you know, when you're when you're 17, you don't think a lot about bad things that can happen. You're invincible. You, <laughs> or you think you're invincible. You, we all think we're invincible when we're that young. We do. I still, I'm 33 and I still think I'm invincible. <laughs> well, I'm 41 and I've, yeah, those days are behind me, but. Well, you also have four kids. So now your, your, your risk tolerance is shifting, right? Well, yes. And it's, so all, all this started with you asked me, why'd you take a big break? why did I take a break? I took a break because of this accident. And, and when I landed, um, at my buddy's feet, I I know it scared them. I know, you know, they, they didn't climb anymore, but I know it had a profound, and throughout college we would go on backpacking trips. And I think it had a profound impact on them. I mean, they thought I was dead. They said, you know, when I hit, it took me a second to catch my breath. Kind of like, you know, there's a few seconds where they thought I was dead. And then, of course, they didn't know what was wrong with me. I don't know how long it took the first responders to get there. You know, I went through a lot, but I think they went through just as much as I did. And then I walked across the stage at graduation in high school. You know, I got down to 90 pounds and I wasn't at that point in my life. I wasn't very, you know, I probably weighed 130 pounds soaking wet. But I was skinny, you know, because when I laid in bed for six weeks, all my leg muscles atrophied and um, I've got pictures. I mean, I was a skinny, skinny guy after that. But I was able to walk across the stage at graduation. And, you know, at that point, I think the people in my life were like, look, you don't need to climb anymore. That's that's too dangerous. And I just accepted that. Uh, I went to college at Auburn University which is a great school, but it's, it's in South Alabama where it's flat as a pancake. And so there was just, you know, no climbing. We would go to North Georgia and go backpacking, but, but that, that part of my life kind of went away and I married my wife and we moved to California, ended up going to law school and, and really just didn't get back into climbing until we moved to Lexington. And that was five years ago. Yes. We moved here five years ago and I think at that point in my life, I just needed something to do. And there's a great climbing gym here, world-class climbing gym. And then I started to learn about the Red River Gorge, which, you know, again, before the internet in 1997, if you were a climber in Alabama, you wouldn't necessarily know about the Red River Gorge. And I had never heard of it. Of course, now I know it's one of the best places in the world to climb. And, you know, slowly got back into it. 
Well, what was ins- what was the inspiration for you to, you know, all of a sudden decide that you wanted to get back into climbing, especially after so long of not climbing and, you know, leaving it, hanging up the hat after such a traumatic fall? I think rock climbing is just one of these things that it grabs you and it doesn't easily let let you go for whatever reason. And as soon as I got back in that gym and I got back on the wall and I started to get strength back and I started to be able to climb harder routes, all I wanted to do was to get outside. And that was a process because of, of my family. I needed, um, I needed somebody to lead the routes cause there's no top roping at the Red River Gorge. Uh, and my 14 year old a couple years ago, went through a class at the gym and he was on the climbing team and he learned to lead. And so he started leading routes. We, we got a guide, which, you know, one of the lessons that, that, that I think comes from all this is just understanding the risks of climbing. Oh, right. And right. Yep. And so, you know, when I got back into climbing, I wanted to go back outside because that's what I love. And I don't know why. I love being at the top of the routes. I love the exposure. I love the fight to get up the routes um, and just being outside in beautiful places. But before I did, before we got back into that, I wanted to make sure we knew what we were doing. So we went down to North Carolina for a weekend and had a guide help us with cleaning because that's what, you know, when you're climbing sports routes, you got to clean them. So JT, my son, he can lead the route and he'll set up an anchor at the top, but then I'm the one that cleans it. So we got a guide to teach us how to do that. And, and, and now we've been climbing a, a lot outside and it's been a lot of fun. What are some of the other lessons that you learned from this? You know, I'll say the, the first kind of quick and easy lessons are, it was the end of the day and anytime it's the end of the day, you should just be extra, extra, extra careful. And then of course, you know, the problem with a bowling knot is you can tie it wrong and it looks right. And I think that's what happened to me. But I think the, the bigger lesson is, is really about understanding the risk of rock climbing the reason I think it's so important to understand the risks or for us to talk about it is this sport is growing. And oh, hugely. Right. Yeah. You know, I think about free solo and Don wall Maru. I mean, there's all these great movies that, you know, really help me want to get back outside. Well, I'm not the only person that, that these movies are having an influence on. And one thing I've, I've heard in your podcast and I've talked a lot about it with my boys is, you know, stories of people that were pretty new to climbing and then they go out and they cut some corners and and bad things happen Um, or they're just not as careful. So I think a big lesson is, is really understanding the risk when you're new to the sport, Mm -hmm. because you can go to a gym and you can climb and you can learn to lead But then when you get outside and you're 85 feet up on an overhanging route and you're cleaning, and if you do something wrong, you will hit the deck. That's just a a whole different ball game. And, Mm -hmm. and that's why when, 
you know, my son could, he could lead. I mean, we were good. I said, well, we're not going to go outside until we spend a day with a guide. You mean he could lead indoors? Correct. Yep. Yes. He, he, he knows how to not back clip and, you know, not Z clip and not get his feet behind the rope and all that. But and I, translating that to, you know, from indoor climbing, you know, setting your son, son up for success for outdoor climbing, there is that, that is a really in, intense transition that so many people overlook. Oh, it's, it's such a different world outside. And I, and, and so the, the one lesson I would say to the people listening to this is one, listen to this podcast so that you can really understand the risk. And, and two, you know, whether you get a guide, which is what I would recommend, or you just find a really good mentor, if you can find one to take you outside and, and basically never, never lose the fear, right? Like make sure you know what you're doing, but you talked about this though, the older you get, the less invincible you feel. And I was talking to somebody at the gym about this back before COVID when, when there were a lot of people at the gym, but I was like, man, you know, every time I clean a route, I'm afraid. I mean, I'm just, I'm up there, I'm hanging. There's a lot of air under my feet and I'm, you know, we, we do it where you're always tied in, but, but still it scares me. And, um, a younger guy looked at me and said, well, you know what, when it, when it doesn't scare you, you should probably stop doing it. Hmm. And I thought, some wise words. <laughs> I, I thought that was really wise. And I think hmm. the, whether it's in my personal or professional or recreational life, one thing I've been thinking a lot about is, um, the older I get, I thought things wouldn't scare me anymore, whether that was being a lawyer or being a father. And the more that I've read, the more I understand the fear is always there. You just have to manage it. That's so funny that that was your thought about fear, because I I am the total opposite. I feel like the older I get, the more fearful I become. And I don't know why that is. And, and maybe it's just this podcast. I've been doing it, you know, I'm in my fourth year of, of doing this podcast and all I hear are accidents after accidents, mm-hmm. after trauma and trauma. Um, maybe I'm starting to get a stress injury from just doing this podcast, but I, in, you know, and I try to, you know, I used to climb way harder than I do now. And I love climbing. Like you're saying, it's just, it kind of holds on to me. So there's always this this thing in the back of my mind, like, oh, Ashley, go climbing, go climbing. You love climbing, but I tend to make excuses, avoid it. And, and, and it's like, I'm fearful of it now because I, I'm, I don't know if it's because I'm older and I can see, uh, you know, by doing this podcast, I can see all the things that can go wrong or if it's, you know, just because I'm getting older and I'm becoming more fearful in general, I, I can't put my finger on it. Well, I think, I mean, to, to be clear, I'm not saying I'm not more afraid. What I'm saying is, I think I've learned that fear's not going away. And I actually agree with you. I think it gets, the fear grows the older you get. And whether that's because you've seen more or in my case, you know, I have more to lose. And I don't mean that from my perspective. But if something happens to me, there's there's four kids and a wife that don't have a dad or a husband anymore. And that's a, right. you know, that's a not something to take lightly instead of taking a kind of a macho view of like, don't be afraid and push hard. 
listen, be afraid, push hard, but understand the risks you're taking. Mm-hmm. And if pushing hard means you might take a 15 foot whipper, you know, wear a helmet. And if you break your ankle, you break your ankle. And maybe that's a risk you're willing to take. But if it means you don't have enough gear to finish a pitch, maybe you just come down instead of pushing through it, which is a kind of a common theme I've heard in your podcast. Running it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you need to always be thinking about what can go wrong. And that's a, and that's not letting fear drive you. That's being reasonable. Um, it's being prepared. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's being a responsible, prepared climber. They say that your brain doesn't fully develop till you're 25 uh, and your ability to really manage risk it, it doesn't develop until you're older. This will be my pitch for, for parents, get your kids into rock climbing. You know, we live in this world now where everything is so safe and, you know, get the helicopter parenting and all that. And all my kids, even down to my seven-year-old daughter, and I'm, I'm trying to get her into it gently. Um, not because she's a, my daughter, but because she's seven. And, uh, and I think she'll get there. But my 14-year-old especially, and my 12-year-old son, to see them push through fear, right? To see them, to see him on a, on a 510 lead outside when he's got, you know, seven and a half feet of run out below him and he's got to reach for that next clip to see him do that. And then he'll come down and say, dad, that really scared me. And I say, that's okay, son. Right. Because we understood the risk and he's learning to push through fear because (laughs) that's, that's life, whether it's having kids or starting a new job or climbing a hard route, you know, pushing through fear, I think is, is a really important thing that people can learn. You know, the, the, the only other thing I, I wrote down in the, when I was thinking about this was the phrase, get back on that horse. And I, you know, one of the regrets I have at, at 41 is that my twenties and thirties didn't involve climbing and, you know, hopefully nothing bad happens to you. Um, and, and, and maybe it's just a bad whipper or a broken ankle or something, but I would, I would encourage people, you know, when something happens, learn from it. But if you can, you know, keep doing the thing you love. Don't let fear um, keep you from doing the thing you love. And just listen to this podcast, learn from the mistakes of others and, and uh, go out there and be safe and have fun. I'd like to thank Brian for being on the show to share his experience with you And I hope his lessons learned and sound advice resonate with you in some capacity. If you like what you hear, don't forget to leave me a review on iTunes. It's been a few months since I've asked that, but truly those reviews go a long way. Thank you to Mammut for being the headlining sponsor. Thanks to Minus 33. Minus 33 Merino Wool Clothing is a hundred plus year old, five generation family run wool company. They produce 100% wool-based layer products designed and tested by New Hampshire's own outdoors. It insulates when wet, has great UV protection, is super soft, odor-resistant, and moisture-wicking. Did I mention it doesn't stink? Visit minus33.com forward slash the sharp end, and 10% of those proceeds will be donated to the National Conservation Fund. Thank you to Desert Mountain Medicine. 
Desert Mount Medicine, innovative wilderness medicine training since 1998. In accordance with various city, county, and state officials, DMM has resumed in-person courses. The health and safety of our students and instructors is top priority, and we will continue to adapt and innovate as we move forward in providing wilderness medicine training. Sign up for Hybrid Woofer in Leadville, Colorado before October 15th and receive a discount of $100 using discount code SHARPEND100. Visit DesertMountainMedicine.com to sign up. Juggling your passion for sports with a busy life can be hard. You want a sports watch that is ready when you are and a smartwatch that handles your every day. Sundo 7 gives you the best of both worlds and is designed to help you get the most out of your time. It's Sunto's first watch that combines its versatile sports experience and free offline outdoor maps with helpful smartwatch features from Wear OS by Google, making this watch the smartest sports watch yet. Go check it out at sunto.com slash sunto7 to learn more. The time you've been waiting for to sign up for Mammut's Berry Vox Beacon. All you have to do this month, I'm mixing it up because not everyone has Instagram. All you have to do is go to sharpendpodcast.com and on that landing page, click giveaway and sign up for the Berry Vox. Easy as that. I'll draw and announce the winner on October 15th. Good luck. And as always, play hard and be smart.